time of the year my favorite holiday no doubt about that but anyway thanks for sharing a part of this holiday season with me thanks to our title sponsor dallas safari club as well as lone star beer and hoff power polaris let me tell you we've got a great show lined up for you today and i think every week is great but this one um this one stands out it's going to be really interesting to say the least and i'm going to tell you all about it here momentarily but first you know what to do as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies, pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos, that green Stanley that Granddad passed down to you years ago, because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we're going to talk some waterfowl conservation, specifically NACA. That is the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. It was reauthorized, which means what? Well, basically... Uh, it expired, and thanks to a bipartisan Congress vote, they have re-implemented NACA for four more years. Here's the great thing about NACA. Not only is the federal government uh, willing to spend up to $60 million a year, but those funds are, well, they have to be matched by other entities. And Craig Lashak of Ducks Unlimited will be here to talk about the significance of NACA, uh, how many acres of wetlands it has conserved since its inception, which I believe was back in the 90s. Not sure on that, but Craig will educate us on the history of the program, what it has meant for waterfowl conservation historically, and its influence going forward. And landowners, you're going to want to hear this as well, because uh, maybe you've got a piece of property that you're looking for a grant. Well, that's where NACA comes into place. So, uh, interesting stuff coming up with Craig, no doubt about it. Uh, after that, we'll head from the marsh to the Whitetail Woods and visit with QDMA communications director and longtime outdoor writer, Lindsay Thomas, will be here. And we'll dive into Lindsay's recent article titled, QDM Works, Culling Doesn't. And culling is a practice that is widespread among whitetail hunters. I know that I have practiced shooting cull bucks over the years. And on the surface, it makes total sense, right? I take out a buck whose antler characteristics I've deemed as undesirable, and therefore, by removing him, he won't be passing those undesirable genes down to the next generation. Seems logical, right? Well, there are a couple studies out there. Uh, a recent one, actually done by Donnie Drager at the Comanche Ranch in southwest Texas, that claim culling bucks absolutely doesn't work. It's, uh, it's ineffective. And so Lindsay will be here to talk about his article and that study in great detail. Some fascinating stuff on the whitetail management side of things. Because I bet a lot of you have shot what you've termed a cull buck over the years. I know I certainly have, like I said earlier. But does it really make a difference? We'll find out on today's show. So certainly looking forward to that conversation. That's what's on the docket for today. A uh, couple other things to mention. 
How about a Christmas giveaway? I've got an, uh, what is, this is a FDWC, that's Feet Down Wings Cupped Duck Call. This is the Professor. Retails for 130 bucks. So right up there in the realm of uh, high-end duck calls. Plus, we'll throw in a box of Kent Fast Steel 2.0. So $150 value on today's giveaway. And to uh, to enter to win, all you need to do is email the word Mallard. That's Mallard to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Also, don't forget, on another note, to keep sending in your best hunting, fishing, or outdoor photos. Our photo of the year contest is wrapping up shortly as we approach the end of 2019. And this year's grand prize winner once again will join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch this coming spring. So keep sending in your best outdoor photos to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. You can also uh, send them to me via Instagram. I'd say you could send them via Facebook, but I'm currently in Facebook jail for some pro Second Amendment posts that I made a couple weeks ago, which uh, got no notification. Just all of a sudden, Facebook said, you no longer have publishing privileges. So bear with me. Hopefully, we'll get that Facebook page up and running again. But you know how Facebook is. Uh, if you're pro-Second Amendment, pro-conservative, they are out to get you, unfortunately. Um, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking waterfowl conservation and the renewal of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act with Craig Lashak of Ducks Unlimited. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Forget the look on his face when he said, Mama's gonna look so great. Sir, I wanna buy these shoes for my mama, please. It's Christmas Eve and these shoes are just her size. Hey y'all, spring is here and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them Cable sent you. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. I don't care what the neighbors say, Christmas time is near. I don't care what anyone says, Christmas is full of cheer. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Wish it was Christmas today. Hey, hey, that is Julian Casablanca spreading a little Christmas cheer. Hope that y'all are having a great holiday season. Making it a point to spend some time in the great outdoors with those who mean the most to you. I know I certainly am. Um, my brother and one of my lifelong friends, actually two of my lifelong friends, the four of us, went out uh, for a little duck hunt. That's kind of become our tradition when uh, certain folks are back in town visiting their parents for the holidays. 
And so, uh, yeah, public land, had a good time, got the dog out, even shot a couple ducks. Can't beat that. And speaking of ducks, uh, we are about to get into a little waterfowl conservation. Some great news as NACA was reauthorized for, I believe, four more years. And what is NACA exactly? It's the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. And when you conserve wetlands, all wildlife benefits, right? So great news on that front. Uh, kudos to Congress for, well, putting their differences aside for the benefit of waterfowl. And we'll be joined by Craig Leshack of Ducks Unlimited here momentarily. He's got a lot more knowledge on that topic than myself. But first, this segment of the show brought to you by Vortex Optics. Check out the new Razer 4000 HD rangefinder if you haven't already. It's perfect from the bow stand to the backcountry. Truly the premier rangefinder on the market. Uh, absolutely love mine. And you can find it as well as Vortex's entire line of optics right there at vortexoptics.com. Now, with that being said, let's bring on our first guest today. Joining us now to talk some waterfowl conservation and NACA specifically, it's my pleasure to welcome Craig Lashak of Ducks Unlimited to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So uh, how has your duck season been? Have you been able to get into the blind a few times? I have not yet. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Um, work has been busy and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, just recently moved uh, into a new house here in Memphis, so been been busy trying to get all that taken care of. But uh, looking forward to getting out over the holidays and, and into January for sure. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned you're in Memphis at DU headquarters. Uh, what are your job responsibilities as the director of conservation uh, operations? Um, I work a lot on uh, partnerships. Uh, international partnerships with, with Ducks Unlimited Canada and Ducks Unlimited de Mexico. Um, I also work with um, state and federal partnerships as part of my responsibilities, which includes things like the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, um, along with our state contributions program mm -hmm. um, that we have with states where they contribute funding uh, that Ducks Unlimited matches that is then sent up to uh, Canada, to Ducks Unlimited Canada, to be used as match on uh, North American Wetlands Conservation Act grants uh, to put habitat on the ground for uh, breeding waterfowl. And um, so those are the main responsibilities that I have for Ducks Unlimited. And does your position require you to travel to D.C. very often? I do. I have to travel to, to uh, D.C. a number of times a year. Um, I also help um, our policy staff as they uh, work on the policy side of things like the North American Wetlands Conservation Act by providing them, um, you know, statistics on 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 how Ducks Unlimited uses not, uh, you know, those grant mm -hmm. dollars, along with answering any questions that they may have. Um, sometimes from time to time they get questions from uh, congressional staff and uh uh, want to know specific uh, information for their particular state that they are covering. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so, okay, interesting stuff there, but we're going to dumb it down a little bit for our listeners sure. and uh, talk about the, well, it's, you know, referred to as NACA. That's the shortened right. version of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. We've got some great news. Uh, November 29th, in a bipartisan vote, the, the House uh, voted in favor of reauthorizing 
uh, NACA, I believe, through 2024. Is that correct? Correct. It was a five-year um, at $60 million per, per year, uh, up to $60 million. doesn't always mean that you get $60 million, but up to the $60 million per, per year. And so that's important uh, part of the legislation because it was, uh, in order for it to be appropriated money, it needs to be, you know, reauthorized. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two parts uh, for the for NACA. One is the reauthorization, which, as you just mentioned, is a five-year deal, and then and then the next step is the annual appropriations for for a given fiscal year within that time frame. Okay. Well, and so this obviously is great news, um, and and I want to applaud the House. I mean, it seems like in our society today. You know, politics, everyone's at each other's throats, and, and they never Absolutely. want to get anything done. So Absolutely. to see them come together, and I think maybe conservation-related issues, is it's one loophole where it's like everyone agrees that we should protect wildlife, you know? and so Absolutely. Think, it, it is the one area where um, there is actually bipartisanship and compromising uh-huh. and working together. I'm not sure how you can be against wildlife conservation. Right. And um, you're just a bad person if you're against that. that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it would seem odd. And you know, it's it's really interesting in that yes, given given the climate that we're in um, and how divisive and 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 how partisan politics are, uh, NACA continues to be one of those areas and has been for you know 30 years where everyone has supported it on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So historically, what is the what is the impact of NACA as we as we take a look back, and then we'll talk about sure. what it means going forward momentarily. Well, um, let let me let me first start by by saying, um, prior to NACA being authorized in 1989, uh, December 13th, actually, which is at the end of this end of this week, President George Bush, uh, first Bush, signed the legislation uh, enacting it. And so we hit 30 years. And but let me tell you a little bit about prior to that. We had an effort between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico mm-hmm. to develop the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. It was the first continental wildlife conservation plan ever implemented, and quite ambitious. Mm-hmm. It focused on waterfowl populations and what habitat objectives we would need to meet those populations. However, it didn't provide any funding. So you have this great plan and quite ambitious and with ways to work together by forming things like joint ventures, which are sort of state, federal, and NGO, um, or you know, non-government organizations like Ducks Unlimited, other conservation organizations, bringing them together to work under these partnerships, and yet there was no money to support that. Well, it's dead in the water then. <laughs> exactly. And that and that was in that was in 1985. Uh-huh. It was signed in 1986 and along came NACA finally 3 years later that provided the funding mechanism for the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Now, over the 30 years NACA has gone through some 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 um, revisions. It focuses on all migratory birds, although waterfowl is still an important component of it. Um but it just shows you, you know, the vision of that North American Waterfowl Management Plan and the fact that NACA came in to help fund that and continues to. And so you ask kind of the accomplishments of that. In the 30 years, we've conserved over 30 million acres of wow. habitat have been put on the ground throughout North America. That's 
Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. So when we say North American Wetlands Conservation Act, it truly is a North American uh, grant, and it covers the entire continent. Uh, there is money. It's divided basically between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico with with up to 50% uh, currently of the funding going to the U.S., 45% to Canada, and 5% uh, to Mexico. Okay. And so, uh, you know, there's grant proposals submitted each year uh, by those three countries from uh, um, entities within them for habitat conservation. And it's focused, as the name says, on wetlands and also on the upland areas that are important for wetlands like nesting areas for waterfowl up on the prairie. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So clearly the U.S. is doing the heavy lifting here. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And However, I, I should point out, and this is an important part of the, of the NACA process, is that it, it relies on partnerships. For every federal dollar that you request in your grant proposal, it has to be matched by at least $1 of non-federal money. So that can come from an entity like Ducks Unlimited or mm -hmm. a state agency um, like the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department or, or private landowners contribute to it too. So the idea behind this is it's a partnership and it's not all just the federal government picking up. In fact, if you take a look over the past 30 years, for every dollar of, of uh, for every federal dollar that's been contributed through NACA, there's been at least three dollars of non-federal match that have come in from from Ducks Unlimited and state agencies, private landowners, foundations. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when you think about it, if you're a if you're a member of Congress and you want to show a great investment, how how you can take a dollar of taxpayers' money and get three dollars in return. Well, you know, you, you, it's no re, it's no wonder why NACA has so much support. Yeah, I wish that my stocks were doing the same thing. I, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that's that's the important part of it too is the is the partnerships and um, uh, and the ability to leverage those federal dollars with with these um, other sources of non-federal uh, match. So in that thirty years, about how many dollars has NACA raised? Uh, NACA has 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 contributed about 1.7 billion dollars. Wow! And and then you know three to one, so it's been over six billion dollars total uh, that that NACA has has put put in. And then um, uh, you know it's about they've done. NACA has funded almost 3,000 projects. I mentioned those that covered 30 million acres, and have given more than about 1.7 a billion dollars in grants and hmm. and I mentioned the partnership aspect of those of those NACA grants there's been over over 6200 partners have been have been part of the NACA process over the past 30 years wow. and they've contributed you know almost 4 billion dollars so if you think about it I mean it's a great model for conservation because it Oh, it's a perfect partnerships, model. right? Yeah. yeah, it gets people invested. It's not just Ducks Unlimited doing the work. It's it's everyone who's interested in waterfowl and migratory bird conservation. Yeah. And then it takes it and it leverages federal dollars, which are in most cases tax dollars, and as a result, it gives great leverage to those tax dollars by by us, the non-federal people, investing in conservation too.
which of course is a wonderful thing. Um, we do need to work in a quick break here, Craig. When we come back, though, I want to find out how these dollars are appropriated, meaning how are NACA dollars being put back on the ground and into conservation and where. I think that's important, and folks certainly are going to want to know where these dollars are being spent because, let's be honest, not all places and regions are created equal when it comes to the life cycle of a duck or goose. So we'll tackle that next. That segment brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd love to invite you. Well, actually, I am inviting you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. For more information, check us out at biggame.org. We'll be right back with more from Craig Lashak of Ducks Unlimited on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Pretty paper, pretty ribbons of blue. Wrap your presents to your darling from you. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway. Hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Can I refill your eggnog for you? Get you something to eat? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere? Leave you for dead? No, I'm doing just fine, Clark. <laughs> Mom got drunk and Dad got drunk At a Christmas party We were drinking champagne punch and Homemade eggnog Merry Christmas from the family. A little Robert Earl King bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. One of my all-time favorite Christmas tunes there. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your holiday season with me. Truly is the most wonderful time of the year, if you ask me. Man, I love Christmas. And, you know, things change in life. Like, when you're a kid, you're excited to get presents. Now, as a father... I'm excited to watch my kids open up their presents. So that cycle just continues. And hell, I don't really ask for anything for Christmas. If there's something I want, I just go out and buy it anyway. I think as adults, we probably have everything we need, right? It's all about the kiddos and uh, and spending time with, with family. Uh, a lot of family gatherings this time of year, and that's always wonderful as well. Uh, this segment of today's show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it, right? So if you're ready to take that plunge and make that dream your reality, whether you want land for recreating, hunting, fishing, running cattle, or just to get the hell out of the big city, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. With that being said, let's pick it back up with Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Operations, Craig Lashak. Thanks for sticking around, Craig. Certainly enjoying the conversation. Thank you, Cable. You know, as waterfowlers, what do we want? We want lots of ducks. 
um, because we're conservationists. And then, of course, the byproduct of lots of ducks is better hunting, uh, more opportunity. I do want to ask you this, though. So, you know, Canada is not as populated as the United States. So right. I, I assume that we are the ones that are, you know, between our government and the, the matching program. A lot of the mm-hmm. funding is coming out of the United States. But you mentioned 45% of it is being reinvested on the ground in Canada. And Correct. I, for one, have no issue with that. And here's why. That's where the ducks, and by and large, are reproducing. So, Absolutely. you know, I think a lot of people, and I, and I hear it in Texas specifically, we're at the tail end of the Central Flyway, um, and the waterfowl hunting is great here, but it needs to be cold. And people yeah. think that, you know, when it's not cold, oh, well, DU's putting that money back on the ground into areas that aren't going to benefit me. Well, right. it, that just, you know, that doesn't make any sense because it all benefits us. The ducks have to, uh, you know, yeah, they need to refuel here on the uh, southern edge of their, uh, you know, migration south. And then they're going to be fat and as happy as possible as they head back north. But uh, you can't put the cart before the horse. And and where they breed, uh, to me, (laughs) it makes the most sense to put the the biggest emphasis on those areas. It does. And and, and we do. And and here's why. A couple things. First, I I sympathize with you. when I started my career with Ducks Unlimited some 20 years ago, I was in Texas along mm-hmm. the Gulf Coast, uh, spent three great years in, in Texas, uh, loved it, um, and, and you know, spent a lot of time hunting, and uh, just, just fantastic place to be. Does it, does it depend on weather? Uh, to a large extent, yes. I mean, there are some birds that migrate regardless, things like blue-winged teal. You know, they're going to come yeah. down and through regardless, but there are other species like mallards and and some of the other birds that just, you know, will will kind of ride that that freeze line, right? If if there's open water and food, they're not going to come. Some birds just don't come down any further than they need to. Yep. Now. And why would they? Because then they're just burning more energy. Exactly. Nature tells them and not to. Exactly. It tell. I mean, if they've got to get back to the breeding grounds, they want to be ready to go, uh, you know, as soon as possible. Now, right. speaking of the breeding grounds, research has has indicated that. When you, when you look at all the factors that influence whether duck populations increase or decrease, most of those, over 70% of those factors, are on the breeding ground. So, as, as to your point about why it's so important to invest in areas like the prairie pothole region or other areas in Canada that produce the birds that come here, that's why. Because if you want to impact waterfowl populations, you want to figure where can you invest the, your dollars for the biggest bang. And it's on the breeding grounds because, because that is where most of the factors are that determine whether a population grows or shrinks mm-hmm. from a waterfowl you know, perspective. And speaking of the prairie pothole region, which most folks hear, and most folks hear that it's called the duck factory. And it's called that for a very good reason. And in years when conditions are right, and we've had some really great years, in the prairies um, um, for a long time without drought, which drought is a normal part of the cycle in the prairies. Sure. Um, but we've been without drought, with severe drought, although we're going into a drought now. It's been dry in certain parts of Canada. Uh, but prior to that, we've had some fantastic years. And in years where conditions are right, up to 70% of the continent's waterfowl are produced in the prairie pothole region. And that's that 330,000 square mile that stretches from Iowa all the way through Minnesota, the the Dakotas, 
and up into Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So it's most of the area is in Canada, um, and and there's a significant portion though also in the U.S. for the prairie pothole region. Mm-hmm. But that's why it's called the duck factory, and that's why it's the highest priority area on the on the continent for for ducks. Yeah, and for ducks unlimited. No, oh, absolutely. For duck hunters too, right? It's it's everyone. <laughs> yeah, but I I will say this. Um, it's not like other areas are getting neglected. You can pull up a nope. a uh, you can go to Ducks Unlimited's website. And you can look state by state at the actual projects that are going on. Um, I was visiting with James Powell the other day um, from from DU. He was down here in Texas, and we did a little upland hunting, um, and he pulled out this map of Texas. And, I mean, it's just littered with uh, works, especially along the coast and then in the uh, panhandle um, yep. where we have just so many, you know, the vast numbers of, of wintering waterfowl That's right. uh, hanging out there. So um, it's not like that other places are getting neglected. No. That being no, said, how does – how does NACA um, appropriate these these funds? So so here's Ducks Unlimited. Here's another partner. We've matched three to one. Now, how do we get those dollars and and sure. say this is what we're going to do with them? Yep. So it goes through a proposal process. So how it works is, and and I've I've been involved with NACA uh, all the way from from writing grants to uh, putting projects on the ground. To now, one of my roles is sitting as a uh, as a representative and part of the NACA scoring process of the proposals themselves. So I've been on on about every part of the spectrum that you can be from from NACA. So uh, what we normally do is we get partners together. We look at a certain landscape uh, that may be the coast of Texas, right, Gulf Coast of Texas, and we say, hey, we've got some important work here to do. We identify the projects. We take a look at what we think the cost may be to implement those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at partners who can contribute to this, who's working in the landscape with us, who has been working with us, entities like Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. We have a number of foundations, and we work a lot on private lands um, in, in a lot in certain areas, especially a place like Gulf Coast of Texas, right? Because over over 95% of the land's in private land ownership. So if you want to if you want to impact waterfowl populations, we also have to work on private land. There's just not enough public land to meet the needs of waterfowl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think so, that's the biggest complaint you hear from, from duck hunters today is, hey, and we've lost so many from our ranks, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and why is that? Well, access. I don't have a place to go. And, uh, right. and you know, I feel like... It, and it's it, important, and we're working, we work on both public and, and private lands. I uh-huh. mean, it's a balancing act, right? Because yeah. we... We well, are doing a lot of stuff at the Gus Engling. Yeah, Gus Engling, WMA. Uh-huh. We, you know, we work on... We probably have touched every every important waterfowl refuge, I know in Texas and certainly or in, in WMA, in, in most states. Uh, you know, going back to where you mentioned about working on the prairies and concentrating there. Yes, that's our highest priority area, but you know, our other high-priority areas are also on the wintering grounds, right? It's important to make sure that, that where waterfowl concentrate, where their populations concentrate in the winter, that we're actively working there. Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana are, is, a, is a hugely important area for waterfowl in the winter. Up to 15 million, you know, waterfowl use that area. Mm-hmm. The, oh, yeah. uh, the lower Mississippi Alluvial Valley, you know, the bottomland hardwood areas of Arkansas, uh, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, those are that's a critical wintering area. 
the Central Valley of, of California. You know, those are the those are the three biggest areas: the Gulf Coast, the Lower Mississippi Alluvial Valley, and the Central Valley of California are the are the three highest priority wintering areas. And then and then we have others that are that are are also critical, like the Panhandle of Texas, the South Atlantic Coast. Um, the Chesapeake Bay area. There, there's there's so many areas that we're trying to to cover, and you know, Ducks Unlimited has projects in in every state. We've worked in every state. Our board has you know mandated that Ducks Unlimited is active in every state. Obviously, not not all not all states are created equal, right? There's sure. some that are that are vastly more important to waterfowl. Yet we also know that there there are important wetlands in every state. Even from a regional, they may not get the they may not get the 15 million birds like the Gulf Coast, but it may be an important area for for ducks in that state. And so we're active, we're actively working with our partners in in all states to to meet the needs of of waterfowl. And NACA is one of the tools that allows us to to compete for dollars to put habitat on the ground. And so getting back to that process, we develop, we write those proposals. Those proposals are submitted. Uh, they go through a scoring process. As I mentioned, there are, there are seven questions that you have to answer, mm -hmm. and you're sort of graded on those questions. And then uh, we go through a, rank, a scoring and ranking process. Um, and I will say for, for the Ducks Unlimited proposals, I have to recuse myself. Um, uh, as 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 does anyone that's scoring them if they have an affiliation with with the grant in any sure. in any manner we recuse ourselves. Uh, but then talk about the merits of the proposal and the impacts to waterfowl and other migratory birds, and and also an important part of the scoring process is the partnership. How many dollars are you bringing? How many match dollars are you bringing? How many partners are you bringing? How many different partners do you bring uh, to to the table through that proposal? And then once they're scored, and then and then we rank them. We rank them based on those scores, and then um, basically look at how much money we have and go down the list to see what we're going to appropriate. You so know, if I'm a private landowner and I've got uh, you know a soil conservation lake, and mm -hmm. you know maybe I've got my dams busted up, and mm -hmm. uh, I am willing to invest the one dollar, and hopefully get you know obviously get the uh the federal dollar to match that yep it can i just do i mean as a private landowner can i come in and say hey I'm, i want to get a NACA grant yeah they're, they're actually it's open to 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 anyone it doesn't have to be um as you can imagine uh managing those grants are 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 a task because it's federal dollars and you know paperwork. Oh yeah, <laughs> your bureaucracy. So so there's a. Well, that's okay. Then I'll just bring on DU to handle all that. Be like, hey. Well, that's, <laughs> well, a lot of a lot of it is we do uh, we do a lot of grants, um, but we're set up to handle them. But again, it's all about the partnerships. We can't we don't do these grants alone. Right. And and Ducks Unlimited, you know, uh, owns very little land. I mean, we 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 have a revolving lands program where we may purchase land, turn around, restore it, and then sell it. Um, to, to a state agency or to a conservation buyer, but the vast majority of the land we work on is not ours. And so we have to rely on partners to access that land, whether it's a state wildlife management area, whether it's a federal national wildlife refuge, um, or whether it's a, a private lands, right? Yeah. Um, so we have to develop those partnerships to do it. The, the, there's two types of NACA grants. There's the standard grant, 
which is up to a million dollars, and those are pretty complicated. Uh, but there's also what's called the small grant, and that's up to $100,000. And it's a little bit of an easier process um, and one that I've seen private landowners, you know, put together uh, a grant for. And they can, they can go on online uh, to the uh, NACA website that's, that's through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and read all about the process and how to go huh. about, about doing that. Um, but I know in areas we work a lot with private landowners, uh, so do other entities, um, uh, other conservation organizations, you know, work with private landowners to put habitat on the ground. And the private landowners are an integral part of, of what we do. But, but so are the state agencies and, 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 and other areas where public access is important. And we value that. And we, you know, any time that we work with uh, our state and federal partners, we're, you know, we're always asking about, Will this help access? Will this open more areas? And we've been yeah. successful in doing that. I, I spent a, a number of years uh, uh, in our Charleston, South Carolina office, um, and a lot of what we did there was open new areas to, to more public access. And we do that all over the country, anywhere where we can add more access or better access, um, because the state agencies want that also. Yeah. They, want to, yeah. they want to have as much land open as, as possible. So we continue to, to work that. And, and folks can help, you know, by, by supporting organizations like Ducks Unlimited. Uh, you know, the more funding we have, the more ways we can leverage and match it to put more habitat on the ground, including more areas to access. And obviously things like buying hunting licenses, you know, that helps your state agency, buying, buying state and federal duck stamps. That contributes more money to the to the to the conservation pot to do. That's more. a whole can of worms that I don't. I'm just so. Uh, I don't know. I'm standing in in line at Academy mm. two years ago when the duck stamp price went up from fifteen dollars to twenty five dollars. Right. The number of people bitching about the ten dollar price increase in that line was, was I couldn't even hold back. I finally just had to say something, and I was like, <laughs> guys. It's been the same price for like since the mid '90s. Exactly. And time price. everything else has gone up. You know, conservation isn't immune to inflation. Gas is more expensive. Beer is more expensive. That can of dip that you just bought on the on your, you know that you're going to buy on the way to your duck hunt that went that was probably three dollars back then. Now it's seven or eight bucks. Right. And you're bitching about ten dollars for conservation. I'm just like mind blowing that these people's yeah. mindset. They're going to price me out on duck hunting. No, they're not. You're just being yeah. a jerk about it. Like, right. you want something for free, which should, which really, you should be spending more money on that than anything else if you're a duck hunter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the stuff like the federal duck stamp. I mean, those dollars turn around and purchase waterfowl habitat. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they go to purchase more, more refuge land, um, and and other and other lands they 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 buy, and it's all important to the overall waterfowl. Uh, sort of uh, conservation enterprise. Same thing with state duck stamp, right? Those state duck stamp dollars go to improving uh, waterfowl uh, areas in, in the state. And, uh, you know, we'll, we're even able to leverage those dollars for, for other sources of funding like NACA. So yeah, it, it, I, I understand. I mean, I know when uh, people like, you know, enjoy hunting and I know the prices do go up. And, and as you said, it goes up on everything, right? Shotgun shells go yeah. up, guns go up, gear continues to go up uh but fortunately so do uh you know so do so do the uh uh wages that people are making those those are increasing too 
Um, but I understand it seems like everything goes up and it would be nice to have something stay static, but the, the buying power just decreases. Like you said, for, for 30 years or 20, 20, 25 years, the duck stamp was the same. Well, People were getting a deal. I mean, hunters were getting a deal on that. <laughs> I know. And, and, and the waterfowl were losing because the buying power for $15 was not what it was 25 years ago when right. the duck stamp was implemented first. But, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. There, there has been no uh, no really impact of that federal duck stamp increase. There haven't been any drastic declines in the, in the drop in, water, in federal waterfowl stamp sales, nor has there been a, dr- a drastic drop in, in hunting license sales because of that increase. So mm-hmm. people may, may complain, yeah. not be happy about it, but in the end, uh, people love duck hunting, and they're willing to 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 pay it, knowing that those dollars hit the ground. They're not they're not just going to support something not related to waterfowl sure. conservation. Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome stuff, Craig. Um, as we kind of wrap things up here, what sure. would the what would the future of waterfowl conservation look like without NACA? Well, I mean. 30 million less acres over 30 years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a real impact. Um, you know, we have, we have impacts now on a number of fronts that continue to accelerate uh, things like impacts from, from agriculture. Um, and we know we have to, you know, we have to produce food. And if you take a look at Ducks Unlimited's, you know, highest priority landscapes for waterfowl, you know, the, the dominant feature on that landscape is agriculture. And so we know we have to work with agriculture to figure out a balance. And we're actively doing that. And NACA is one of those, you know, tools that we can use to, to help drive conservation. And, and yet at the same time, we're working with ag producers to, to help their bottom line in order to help implement conservation measures. If we can do conservation on, on working land like farms, then it's a win-win. You get, you get producers that, that get benefits from some of these things that we're doing to their overall operation. And yet at the same time, they're beneficial to, to waterfowl conservation. Here's an interesting question that, that just popped into my head while we're talking about agriculture mm-hmm. and it's, it's out of left field, but I've got to ask like, 200 years ago, when we didn't have all this agriculture, what, what did these ducks eat? You know, how did they survive? And, and, and mm-hmm. are there just vastly more ducks now than there was then? And then they're depending on this ag. Like, how is that the life cycle of these, these wintering birds, how has it changed? There wasn't any large-scale agriculture 250, no. 300 years no. ago. So, so as to the amount of population, no, no one really knows that, right? No one knows what the duck populations were like back you know, uh, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. But what they relied on was was native vegetation, the 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 seed, the plants that grow naturally in marshes and wetlands. Um, I'll give you one example. I mentioned earlier an important area, the the Lower Mississippi Alluvial Valley. Um, you know that 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 area along the Mississippi River in Arkansas. Uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, mm-hmm. the floodplain there. I mean, that, that, that area used to be 24 million acres of bottomland hardwood forests, which in the winter would flood. And those were all, and a lot of it was oak trees, right? So mm-hmm. you have acorns, right? So, so the ducks relied on acorns. Well, over the years, that, had, that was reduced 
to a low point of about 5 million acres of trees left. That's it. Everything else, a lot of that was converted to agriculture. Now, you had the benefit of having agriculture where it could be flooded and the birds can access things like rice and soybeans, but you have the loss of that of that native, you know, habitat. So, in some respects, the agriculture has replaced um, some of the natural habitats, but yet the, the food contained in things like corn and rice and, and, and soybeans doesn't meet all the needs of waterfowl. They still have to find some of those, those critical nutrients in, in what's called you know, native vegetation, you know, wetland plants that grow naturally in, in different wetlands. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate the time, Craig. Uh, we're yeah. we're excited about this. I think the Senate still has to pass it into law, or yeah, I think correct. Uh, correct. But it hasn't, it hasn't it, gone through the Senate. There's yeah. a bill in the Senate, um, but it hasn't been voted on yet. But there's no reason to think that it won't go through. I mean, like we said, no, we're pretty optimistic. But yeah. um, you know, folks out there that listen to this can contact their their senators and and let them know that they support. NACA reauthorization, and they want them to, to support it, too, that it's important to them. You can go on Ducks Unlimited's website. There's uh, tools there that will help you do that. If you uh, search on the NACA and policy for Ducks Unlimited, there will be uh, things uh, that can help folks uh, take that step if they, if they care to. Um, every, every time a, a congressional person hears from someone in their, in their district, um, it, it, it makes an impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Craig, thanks again for your time. And I encourage everybody to get plugged in with their own local DU chapter. I've been uh, lucky to be serving on the Dallas committee now for, I think, seven or eight years. And you meet a lot of great people. And at the end of the, uh, you know, your annual, whatever your fundraiser is, ours usually is a banquet. And you you get to write a check for $250,000, $300,000 for, for the Ducks. It's a, it's a good right. feeling. Well, we appreciate, uh, you know, your volunteering at Dallas and then all the other volunteers, over 50,000 volunteers, uh, myself, I'm, I'm a volunteer too, even though I work for DU, but I appreciate everyone giving their time because today that seems to be more precious than, than a lot of other things is time. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for the opportunity to, to uh, uh, talk today about, about ducks and about uh, NACA and um, look forward to uh, helping in the future as I can. We will do it again, my friend. Thanks again, Craig. Thank you, Cable. So there he goes, Craig Lashak, Ducks Unlimited Director of Conservation Operations. That segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by John X Safaris. The date is in. It's July 25th through August 2nd, 2020. I'll be hunting Cape Buffalo. What do you want to hunt? Plains game? You're welcome to join that trip. If you're interested in the safari of a lifetime, just shoot me an email, LoneStarOutdoorShow at gmail.com. Oh, and uh, if you can't swing it this summer, we're already making plans for 2021. So uh, that's an option as well. Um, let's take a break. Up next, Lindsay Thomas of the QDMA joins us. And we'll get into some whitetail management conversation, specifically calling bucks. Does it work? We'll take a look at the science right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here, and uh, I want to tell you about outdoor access. See, access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? 
Well, outdoor access is the solution to that problem. Think Uber, but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from. And it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, use the activation code Lone Star at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code Lone Star for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. Well, we couldn't shake that Lone Star state of mind. There's a very old Rich O'Toole Christmas down in Texas bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, that that tune there is not far off from our family Christmas. We're certainly doing it up Tex-Mex style, margaritas, fajitas, tacos, nachos, guacamole, you name it. Uh, That's our plan for Christmas Eve with my wife's side, and then Christmas Day with my side, of the family. It's always lasagna, in this case, venison lasagna and Caesar salad, uh, which I will not be eating any of that rabbit food, but uh, I dang sure will be getting down on the venison lasagna. I'm sure that y'all have some culinary holiday traditions as well, and that's also one of my favorite things about this season. Uh, We're about to talk some whitetail management here with Lindsay Thomas of the QDMA, but first, this segment is proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You know, Josh and Becky Gunther, uh, they've been taking care of me for a long, long time, doing all of my taxidermy, whether that's uh, Axis deer, a European mount on a bull elk, or a trophy trout from the Texas coast, a replica. They do it all. They do amazing work. They offer quick turnaround time, and they answer the phone when I call. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com for your next trophy. Well, let's bring on our next guest for what I know is going to be a very interesting conversation. Joining us from the QDMA headquarters, it is my pleasure to welcome Communications Director Lindsey Thomas to the show. Cable, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm honored that you'd invite me. Yeah, man, it is my pleasure. It's great to have you on. I can't tell you, Lindsey, how many of your whitetail-related articles I've read over the years. Um, and we're going to discuss a recent one I found particularly interesting. But first, tell us about yourself as a as an outdoorsman, as a writer, and what you do as communications director for the Quality Deer Management Association. Yeah, I'm a communications director here, and my primary role is uh, I'm editor of Quality Whitetails Magazine, which is QDMA's membership magazine. Um, we're a nonprofit organization, as you know, and, and we operate based off of membership income and, and a few other sources of income. But what our members give us for being members is how we're supported, um, and we return that with a magazine um, that's informational about deer management and, and preserving deer hunting heritage. So I produce that along with uh, my staff here, um, and then I'm also in charge of social media, uh, email communications. We have a weekly free newsletter that anybody can sign up for, uh-huh. um, and uh, the website 
so all communications coming out of QDMA, my department handles. Um, I've been here 16 years, um, and I'm a lifelong hunter, an outdoorsman, fisherman, but my personal passion has always been um, deer hunting and beyond that, deer management, um, playing with populations and with harvest decisions to make deer populations better and make hunting more exciting. I mean, when you when you manage a herd so that you've got balance out there socially, it's more fun. You see more scrapes and rubs. You see more rut behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you have a better chance of seeing more adult bucks. Um, and then playing with habitat, too, is a passion of mine, improving deer habitat, not just to hold and attract deer, but to provide top-quality nutrition. So all of that sort of plays into, you know, my role here at, at QDMA. So, mm. yeah, I, I enjoy being here and, and doing what I do for this organization. Right, right. So today, Lindsay, I want to discuss your October 16th piece titled QDM Works, Calling Doesn't. Because if you sat down with the average low-fence uh, landowner or whitetail leaseholder and you asked them about their management plan, I'd almost guarantee you they'd say they try to take X number of does off the property annually and then the words call bucks would also be a part of that conversation. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely in Texas where you are. There's no doubt. I mean, I think this concept originated in Texas. Now, it has spread beyond that. Um, I don't think it's as common where I am here in Georgia or, say, in the Northeast or Midwest, but it's definitely in those areas as well. But I think you are definitely in the heartland of the culling management bug world. Yeah. Well, and we've talked a lot about Pennsylvania here, you know, as far as being in the news, allowing Sunday hunting and um, for the first time since like the 1600s. But, you know, I think their mentality up there is if it's brown, it's down, right? You know, certainly more in the past than today. I mean, yeah. In Pennsylvania, you know, you had in the past, um, they were killing uh, 90% of their buck harvest in some years, years ago, were yearling bucks. Yeah. 90% of the buck harvest. Wow. And it's come way down from that. Um, and there were some other states that were pretty high. Those have come down as well. Um, we've seen that across the board in every state, really. Some have made more dramatic changes over the last 20 to 30 years in yearling buck harvest. Um, and some have been slower to decline, but they're pretty much all declining. And that's, um, you know, primarily the biggest factor is simply voluntary restraint by deer hunters. Yeah. Certainly you've got some states where some regulations are involved that have played a role, but but we see it in many areas where there are no regulations on that. You're still seeing voluntary restraint over time by deer hunters choosing to protect more yearling bucks. Yeah. Um, well, and I, you know, obviously Texas has antler restrictions. Um, both the counties that I have leases in do have a 13-inch minimum inside spread. And um, we'll talk more about that coming up here. But uh, I, I do know for a fact that, that is, uh, it has statistically resulted in the average age of bucks being shot increasing. So at least we know that bucks are having a better chance of reaching maturity. Now, whether or not it's actually affecting the uh, overall antler quality of the herd, um, we can hit on that coming up here in a minute because I'm sure you have thoughts on that. But, uh, you know, from from the average person's perspective, the average whitetail hunter. You know, it makes sense. I mean, in Clay County, where I just I sent you that picture of that buck I took this weekend, we have three to four mature bucks that we'd love to remove from the gene pool, you know, like call them, using that word, because they're never going to make the mandatory 13-inch inside spread. However, we can't shoot them, and, you know, common sense would tell you they're out there breeding those does that we want um, 
you know, higher quality antlered bucks breeding. But you're here to tell me that it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's right. Um, as you said, common sense might tell you that. Yeah. And, and I, the logic is seductive that, hey, deer breed, and this deer's out there probably breeding does. Most of them do. Um, and therefore, if you remove him, you've removed you know, his antler traits. That's easy logic, and it mm-hmm. sure makes a lot of sense. But for a lot of good reasons, um, it just doesn't work that way. And the science on this, um, some very good uh, deer research, has shown very clearly that it doesn't work, that um, you cannot, hunters of wild deer, cannot change deer genetics, for better or worse, in a measurable way with triggers, mm-hmm. uh, with with you know, um, modern hunting. Um, now captive animals, you know, um, whether that is cattle, whether it is domestic dogs and cats that we all, you know, breed for certain characteristics. Well, we control that. We control who breeds who Mm -hmm. in the wild. You can't control that. You cannot control who breeds who, even by removing a deer that you think has, um, you know, poor antler genetics. Uh, you still don't control who's breeding who, and you don't control genetic flow, um, for a lot of good reasons. So it just doesn't, you just don't have any effect. And what we're also learning now from this newest study that, that you read about in my article is uh-huh. that there's also no link between antlers you're looking at and that buck's contribution to the future genetics of the population. You cannot look at antlers and know what that buck is producing in his offspring. Um, there's just no link. That's what we now know from DNA studies. So it, it just, when you can't do that, when you can't look at a buck and say, well, he's got below average antlers for his age, um, that does not automatically mean he's producing below average antler offspring. We now know that. Yeah, so let's talk about Donnie Drager's Southwest Texas study on the Comanche Ranch. I'm going to let you give us the basically the outline of how this study was conducted, and then we'll get into the results. Okay. Yeah, very well set up study. Um, and then second, really, this is the second time a major year-long, multi-year study of culling has taken place in Texas. Earlier, Mickey Hellickson did a study on the King Ranch, um, and Donnie's is more recent, uh, working with uh, uh, research, researchers, students, and professors at Texas A&M Kingsville and also Mississippi State. They contributed with Donnie on this Comanche study. And um, so his was really the second biggest one, but the, the, the interesting thing about Donnie's is it's the only study that involved DNA as well. So the bucks that they were studying, they collected DNA from. And ultimately you can't argue with produced, DNA, that's for sure. Yeah, and ultimately produced family trees out of all these deer. Uh-huh. So, And the interesting thing about this study is Donnie, who's the chief wildlife biologist at the Comanche Ranch in southwest Texas, entered this study believing in culling. Huh. Um, they did it. He practiced it on the ranch. He promoted it and encouraged it. And as he said, spent a heck of a lot of money and manpower and time on it. Um, and at the end of the study, he flipped that on its head. He no longer encourages the ranch yeah. to spend money, manpower, and time on it because he now knows and says it doesn't work. Well, and this study so what they, occurred from 2005 to, uh, 2006 to 2015. So, uh, Correct. Uh, uh, you know, this is, I'd say, three generations of deer that you know, they've studied here. That's right. Over 10 years, they were capturing deer, and then over seven of those years, they were culling. Uh-huh. And as you saw in the article, basically what they did, as any good scientific study does, they set up a control, meaning an area where you know, you're know you going to test something, but you're not going to uh, apply anything over there and see how that works out. Uh-huh. In other words, they had three areas. They had an intensive culling area of 3,500 acres. They had a moderate culling area of 18,000 acres. 
then they had the control of 5,000 acres. And what you need to know is all three of these areas were in close proximity to each other on the ranch, similar habitat, similar ma- all managed the same, similar buck-to-doe ratio, similar age structure. In other words, all management practices on these three areas were the same, all apples-to-apples, yeah. except one Similar fact. access to food, you know, same types of Every- protein availability, all that stuff. That's right. Okay. Everything equal because they're trying to uh, narrow this down to only one management uh, uh, tool that differs across the three areas, and that's culling. And on the control, there's no culling. Yeah. So what you should be able to do at, with a study set up this way is that at the end of the study, at the end of the seven, eight, nine, ten years of your work, um, there should be a clear uh, improvement of antler quality on either the moderate or intensive culling area compared to the control. So it's a very well-designed study. They went into this, you know. And then here's the other thing. The way they were capturing these deer, as, and you guys in Texas are familiar with this. Um, not everybody, deer hunters in the east don't know it as well, but the helicopter capture technique. Mm-hmm. Um, because in southwest Texas you've got the open brush country, and they can very effectively capture deer from the air with helicopters and net guns. Um, that's how they were capturing these deer. These These helicopter... Uh, pilots are, um, I mean, these folks are like cowboys on horseback. They are very effective at, at lassoing these deer, As you, if you've ever seen it done. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, this is a far more effective method of capturing, measuring, and culling deer than um, sport hunters being out there, you know, on the ground with rifles, you know, limited visibility, et cetera. With these helicopters, they're flying around finding these bucks and and capturing all of them that they can. Um, And what they did was, um, for example, in the control area, they were also capturing bucks for all 10 of these years. Uh, But they were just releasing them all there. And when they capture these bucks, they're measuring the antlers, they're studying the jawbone to get a good age estimate on the deer, they're inserting a microchip tag under the skin, and that's so that when they capture the buck again, if they capture it again in multiple years, they can scan it with a device that tells them quickly which deer this is. Mm-hmm. They don't have to have an ear tag, for example. Right. Um, so, and they're collecting data on all these deer. Now, many of these deer early in the study, you know, when you capture a buck and it's a fawn or a yearling, when you look at its teeth, age is 100% accurate. You can look at the way the tooth, the teeth are being replaced to a quickly identify a fawn or yearling with 100% accuracy. There's no subjectivity looking at tooth wear on those deer. So, all of those deer, when they're captured subsequently in later years, they know to the year exactly how old these bucks are. So that's an, an important factor here. Um, so then let's talk about the culling criteria that they used. Yeah. On the intensive area, 3,500 acres, they culled every age class. Yearlings with less than six antler points were culled. Two-and-a-half-year-olds with less so than eight every points. every spike they're culling there. Every spike and four-pointer. Wow. Every three-pointer. Every five-pointer. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, yeah. Two-and-a-half-year-olds with less than eight points, three- to four-year-olds with less than nine points, and bucks, all bucks five-and-a-half or older that scored less than 145 gross Spoon and Crockett. Wow. All of these deer were culled out. So every age class was intensively culled. Only the best deer, literally, top of the class in each age group, were released on the intensive area. Mm-hmm. Now, the moderate was obviously more moderate, and it was the same criteria except culling didn't start until three to four-year-olds. Year old, 
they did not cull yearlings and two-year-olds in the moderate uh, area, the 18,000 acres. Okay. So again, in that area, three and a half to four with less than nine points. So all eight-pointers, all sevens, all sixes that, that reached that age class were culled out. Uh, and all bucks, five and a half or older, scoring less than 145 gross. Um, and then in the control area, again, all bucks released, captured, mm -hmm. data collected, tagged, and turned loose. Um, so we can jump quick into the results. Can we just quickly tell you how that went? Yeah, absolutely. All right. In the intensive area, as you might guess, what Donnie said was, you know, they basically were causing a buck extinction. Um, something like 93% of the yearlings captured were, were coal-worthy by those criteria. And yeah. so um, but when you pile that on top of natural mortality and, and just, you know, every deer population, you, you're going to have buck mortality out there. It's just so you're going to have a terrible buck-to-doe ratio here as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what happened. At the start of the study, their ratio was one-to-one bucks-to-does. And by the time the culling was over, it was one-to-six. Wow. And what they saw from that was that uh, there weren't enough bucks out there to breed the does in the area when they were on their first or even second estrus cycle. So you had a lot of them going to third estrus cycles going longer. That ended up uh, resulting in a lot of late-born fawns in that area. And when you have a late-born fawn, that's a setback for that deer, you know, because of nutritional cycles, annual nutritional and seasonal nutritional cycles. And so what they were doing, as Donnie said, in that area, they created a negative feedback loop. In other words, a fawn might have been gen genetically superior, but their bodies couldn't express that potential because they were born late, mm -hmm. and they ended up getting culled anyway. So so literally deer that, that genetically, if you could look inside them with some kind of scanner and scan their DNA, you'd go, hey, this is a great deer genetically. But he was a spike or a four-pointer because yeah. he was born late. And so... You know, as he talked about this negative feedback loop, when you end up, you know, culling deer because they've got nutritional problems, um, not because it's genetic, you know, it, things you're only making things much worse. And, of course, they did. I mean, it was literally almost a local buck extinction in that area. Yeah. So that clearly was not the way to go. Now, on the moderate side, um, they did not see that effect. You know, they were not culling yearlings and two-year-olds. Uh, so they weren't, you know, really essentially wiping out the bug population. But what they found was after seven years of culling was complete, they saw no evidence of genetic change. Not you even like expect, a couple inches, nothing. Nothing. What you would expect with a study like this, right, is that as time goes on, if you're having an effect, the proportion of bugs you capture that you have to cull should be getting smaller, right? right. It didn't. They were still culling the same proportion of captured deer every year that met the culling criteria uh, all the way into the end of the study. And then, more interestingly, um, when you compared the moderate area to the control area where no culling took place, um, there was no difference. Uh, wow. The average Boone and Crockett score of the standing crop of bucks, the, the existing deer in the moderate area at the end of the study, was the same as it had been at the outset and same as in the control area. Huh. So despite this, the moderate area, 18,000 acres being subjected to high-tech helicopter capture and culling for seven years, there was no difference in antler quality of the bugs out there. This is just, um, uh, I mean, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but for the, for the Texas deer hunter, I mean, yeah, this, is, this flies in the face of, I mean, shoot, I've been doing this for 10 years, and 
uh, other than that one King Ranch study that I, I heard about years ago, I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's something there. You know, I just, I think I just went along with my business, you know, just thinking, hey, we, we call bucks that we don't want. That's why they're called cull bucks. We don't want those genetics. And now this study is saying, hey, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. And here's why. The interesting thing was here's why. Going back to what I said about Donnie and his crew, uh, the Texas A&M folks, Mississippi State folks, having DNA on their side in this study, mm-hmm. um, they were able to build a family tree um, and connect offspring back to 963 buck fathers. And they built out this tree of fathers, sons, and brothers, immediate relatives of all these bucks. And, th- and what they found, what they tried to look at was breeding value. That's what they called it. In other words, not existing deer, but looking at any buck, what is his value for producing future deer? Uh, what, what's the quality, regardless of his antlers, what's the quality of his fawn and his grand fawn? You know, what genetically, what were those deer like? And what they found was no connection between antler size of the father buck and his breeding value. And basically what that means was low-scoring bucks for their age that produced fawns that were high-scoring bucks, potentially, genetically. And the reverse, they found high-scoring bucks for their age that were kicking out fawns that were cull bucks. Um, Well, and one of the interesting things that I saw, and and there's a picture in your story, it's a a six-and-a-half-year-old buck. I guess he had to be in the control area because he wasn't shot. Um, he grossed 123 and six eight inches, right? So for that area of the world, it, that's a trophy for a lot of people, right? But in that part of the world, it's not. And he, this one buck, at 123 inches as a six and a half year old, he had the highest breeder value of any of the deer in this entire study. Right, meaning that his offspring were large antlered. Uh-huh. They were not, you know, these were the bucks you want. So you know, under the culling rule, you're looking at this six and a half year old. Uh, 120 class buck out there and going, yeah, that's we need to get him out of the gene pool. Right. No, you're, you're flat wrong. That's the very buck you want out there. Huh. But you have no way of knowing that. Yeah. You have no way of knowing that he's the buck to leave out there. You know, and that was one thing I asked Donnie. I said, okay, so you did find some high-scoring bucks that were good breeders. In other words, they had high breeding value. They produced fawns that were high-scoring fawns, right? He said, yeah, we did find those, but they were so few of those deer, that even if you could somehow, and you can't, but even if you could somehow look at a deer in the field and go, you know, okay, I, I can see his breeding value, and you could somehow call down to those high-scoring bucks with high breeding value, you'd have almost no deer left out there. Um, yeah. You'd have, no, you know, going hunting would be tough. You wouldn't see much. It'd be mighty boring. But then you'd get into this feedback loop we talked about earlier of not being enough bucks out there to breed the does and you fall into this problem of all these late born fawns and then you get the nutrition problems you know yeah so it's just it can't be done they tried Hmm. to make it work and they found out why it couldn't work was because of this lack of a link between antler quality you look at with your eyes and that buck's potential for the future deer yeah huh okay well there's still a lot more I want to get into. We do need to take a quick break because I, I want to buy into this, but you're going to just have to beat me over the head with a hammer to really convince <laughs> me uh, just because we've done things the same way for so long. And I'm coming over to your side of the fence, but uh, you can convince me after the break. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. And that segment was brought to you by the Pulsar Axion Thermal Monocular. It's got all the great features you've come to expect from a Pulsar Thermal, uh, but 
in a compact size. Literally, it's smaller than my cell phone. And the beauty of it is, is that you're no longer blowing deer out of your area when you're walking in. They can't see you, but you can see them. It's great. It's awesome. It's the Pulsar Axion, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from Lindsey Thomas of the QDMA. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Christmas in Dixie. It's snowing in the pines. Merry Christmas from Dixie. To everyone tonight. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to 3 or call 214-641-8097 today. I'm leaving Santa Lone Star. Hey Santa, thanks for working so hard. Hey Santa, I know you travel so far. Hey Santa. There's a little Sam Mason and Songbird Jones. I'm leaving Santa Lone Star. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back. To the Lone Star Outdoor Show this holiday season. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for being here. Um, we are still visiting with QDMA Director of Communications and longtime Whitetail writer, Lindsay Thomas. But before we get back into it with Lindsay, this segment brought to you by Our Luck Outfitters, offering the best in Newfoundland moose hunting. I actually just got my antlers and my meat back as it was shipped from Newfoundland to Texas on a, uh, a frozen, I guess it's a frozen, uh, 18-wheeler, showed up in Dallas, and I had to go to a cold storage facility, pick it up. It all went off without a hitch. Got it all back, I think, 250 pounds of, of venison from that bull. And uh, not to mention the hunt itself was awesome. Highly recommend it. You can find them at ourluckoutfitters.com for your Newfoundland moose hunting adventure. All right. Well, let's get back into it with Lindsay, who was nice enough to stick around. Certainly appreciate it. I'm enjoying it, Cable. It's it's always great to to find out when science backs something up. Uh, 16 years at QDMA, my primary role has been following the science and sharing that with deer hunters. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the thing to know about the science of this stuff that I think most hunters will understand, science is uh, like sighting in your rifle. Um, if you take one shot with your rifle and look at it on paper, you don't know yet where you're hitting, right? You don't take that one shot and go, now I know where I'm hitting, I'm, I'm heading to the deer stand. You shoot several times, mm -hmm. right? And you look for a group. And science is the same way. You want to see studies on the same topics clustering, you know, in the same point. Well, when you combine Donnie Drager's uh, study with Mickey Hellickson's study and, and a couple of others that have been done, we're seeing a very tight group, and it's it's very clear. So I want to just point that out. It's more than just Donnie's uh, uh, Comanche Ranch study. Sure. It's the more recent one. Um, it's starting to show a pattern um, that we're starting to see that clearly says hunters of wild deer cannot manage deer genetics. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the uh, the Helixon study that was on the King Ranch, they didn't have the DNA aspect. And so, you know, trying to convince me, I'm like, okay, this is when I when – I, Saw that one. I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to buy in. Now, you can't argue with science, right? So, um, that well, you can, but if it's if it's done well, it gets harder to argue with. Right. I mean, in right. this case, you know, in the Comanche Ranch study, you're looking at um, multiple grad students that worked on this study over the years, major funding from the Comanche and other sources. You know, t all of the professors, multiple professors and, and advisors from Texas A&M Kingsville and from Mississippi State University working on this over years. So, you know, this wasn't just one scientist going out there and telling you what they thought. Um, so when people, you know, when I see people... Well, shoot, the area alone is like 30,000 acres. I mean, that's a massive, right. massive area. Thousands of bucks, multiple yeah. years, you know, dozens of experts working on this over the years planning it, executing it, and following up with, I mean, they're still pulling uh, scientifically published journal studies out of all this data. They're still working in it. Yeah. So, you know, this was this is not a study that someone should lightly dismiss and say, well, they didn't design that study very well. Right. Wrong. This right. was about as, but done just about as well as you could ask this question. And for me, you know, like you use the, uh, the uh, alliteration of, of going out and shooting a rifle. To me, this is the second bullet hole in the bullseye you know now you're getting yeah now you're like well, they, this is the this is a group now <laughs> that's right and yeah. the second shot hit the, the went in the hole the first one went in right oh so. right right um okay well let's continue the discussion here because this is like let me play the devil's advocate we know that specific antler traits can and are passed down by bucks right so that's that's i mean that's actually science it happens you even mentioned uh before the break that um Donnie found that it wasn't as common as we would have thought where these big, big bucks were uh, producing big antlered fawns. But we do know, and you can look at it because you can see specific traits like a drop tine or a flyer or some of that stuff or, or um, width, all that stuff can be passed down. So if we know that is true, then we also know that, well, crappy antlers can be passed down or, or what I would define as uh, less desirable uh, traits. Convince me again. How if, I, if right, I'm well, taking how if I'm taking the less desirable trait out of the breeding pool, and I'm allowing uh, one of the bucks that I want breeding a doe? How am I not making a difference? So rather than saying less desirable or crappy or whatever, I like to say below average or above average because that's okay. what we're talking about. I'm using deer camp lingo. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but I like to think of it as you know, there's nothing because personally, there's nothing wrong with any of these deer. Sure, there's nothing wrong with a 100-inch 5-year-old any more than there's something wrong with a 190-inch 5-year-old. Mm -hmm. They're simply 
part of the same bell curve distribution that you see for all the five-and-a-half-year-old bucks out there. They're all going to have an antler score, and most of them, it's going to, it's going to depend on where you are, but say in South Texas, the average five-and-a-half-year-old buck out there is going to be about 130, yeah. um, most of them, but very few. You know, fewer will be 140 and fewer will be 150, and a very slim number will be 160, 170, and on up. Same, but there's a flip side of that, where a very slim number of five-and-a-half-year-olds are going to be 100 inches and 90 inches. That's just genetic diversity. Uh Uh, So there's nothing wrong with any of these deer. Now, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago when you started me out on this. You said, you know, these traits are passed down by the bucks, and you're right. What did you leave out? The does. The does. Absolutely. They're also passed down by the does. Yep. This isn't, you know, there's an equal contribution here. Yeah. Um, the difference so, is, is we don't, we can never look at a doe and know what, like she doesn't correct. have a physical trait that says, here's my, you know, here's what I am genetically, you know, so. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Now, if you've got a hundred acre pen or uh, let's say a 20 acre pen, whatever, mm-hmm. and where you are in absolute control of who's out there and who breeds who, um, can you remove a, a, a narrow spread genetic gene? Yeah, you probably could because no new genes are coming in. You know who's breeding who and you know who you removed. Um, you know, you, that's where you have to study this more carefully and, and know who your does are and that kind of thing. But you can make a difference there. Mm-hmm. In the wild, there's so much genetic blending going on that you most people don't think about. Um, which, which is great. That's how it's designed to work, right? I mean, that's what, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Doe, we know that doe behavior is such that most doe fawns end up staying right where they are and end up staying in their mother's family group and then with their grandmother, and they all just kind of, you know, uh, they they end up with these doe family groups that tend to stay in the same area. They rarely disperse to, to broad areas. Bucks are the opposite. The vast majority, seventy-five percent or more of all yearling bucks at around a year and a half of age, will leave where they were born and go some number of miles usually and sometimes a lot of miles in a, in a direction. Uh, we don't fully understand why they go the direction they go or what makes them stop. Uh, often it's in a straight line. And when they stop, they're in their adult home range, and they're going to die there. They don't ever make another uh, uh, dispersal Journey. movement like right. that as an, as an adult. And that makes sense. I mean, if you're talking about a two-, three-, four-year-old buck that survived this long, from a reproductive standpoint, he's valuable to the species. For him to leave his familiar range and go on another journey like that, that's high risk. So you don't want, you know, it, it, is, it is a survival plus for a buck to set up an adult home range and never leave it again mm-hmm. because he knows the area. He knows where the food is. He knows where to hide. He knows where the does are going to be. He knows where, you know, how to survive there, where the danger zones are. So they do this one time, and then they set up an adult home range. Well, this is leading to genetic flow. You know, if you've got a 300-acre property you're hunting, and you're looking at a yearling buck in the fall, he probably wasn't born here. He came in from somewhere else. Um, And if you're looking at a button buck standing there, he's probably not going to be here next year. He's probably going to disperse somewhere else. So there's one big source of genetic flow across a landscape. 75%. I'm I'm just thinking about my 700-acre lease, right? Yeah. So in in yesterday morning I'm out there and I see a spike and two I would say two and a half year olds that they each had one side broke off and you know they were I think one was a three point on one side and one was a four. And so those three bucks that I'm sitting there looking at, likely none of them are going to reach maturity on, on my property. 
Probably not. Yeah. Now that's you know it's odds. It's not a guarantee. Sure. We, sure. Again, we know that not all yearling bucks disperse. Some do stay there, but yeah. most of them do. Uh-huh. Um, so again, okay. this is genetic flow across the landscape. We also know that adult bucks, even though they stay loyal to that adult home range, they do make excursions. Um, you know, we've seen that many times in most bucks wearing GPS collars in a lot of studies all around the country, mm-hmm. where. Uh, and this happens everywhere, particularly during the rut. Yeah. He's got, so let's say, let's say he's got a 600-acre uh, home range, which is probably right in the realm of what's average. Um, but when the rut comes, every now and then, what we see him do is leave that home range and go off a mile, maybe two miles over a 24-hour period, hang out for a few hours, and come back home. Um, and what we think's going on there, obviously, is he's going, he's hooked up with a nestrous doe and come home. Maybe not. We haven't confirmed that. Um, though there was one case where a researcher actually had a collar on a buck in one area and a collar on a doe in another area and watched them both leave their home range and hook up in the middle and go back home, each of them. So, um, you know, what we, this, so again, even though this buck is not moving his home range, um, he's traveling to another area, spreading his genes somewhere else probably and Mm -hmm. coming back home. Again, another source of genetic flow. And that also explains why, you know, when you're hunting your area and you feel like you've got a good uh, uh, knowledge of your bucks that are out there, and you know, when a buck walks by you've never seen before, that's probably what's going on. Yeah. Um, so there's all these sources. I mean, it happened on that. Uh, just for just example, you know, it, uh, my buddy Wyatt, he shot a buck uh, opening weekend of rifle season. That, and we have a you know pretty good idea of what we have out there, right? We have cameras, and no one had ever seen that buck. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So all kind of explanations for gene flow across the landscape, which is good for a deer population. You know, uh, genetic flow is a good thing. But it explains why a hunter of wild deer hunting a limited hunting season and limited legal hunting hours with a limited range weapon um, and a limited bag limit is simply not going to make a difference in who breeds who out there across time and across a large area. And that's what's required. Mm-hmm. You know, survival pressures like that to make genetic change have to be consistent year-round, 24-7, um, across a very large area for a long time to make genetic change. And hunters just can't do that. So, you know, you see a legal deer, if he makes you happy, take him. But don't mislead yourself that you've changed the gene pool with a trigger pull, pull because you haven't. Well, you haven't heard it, and you haven't helped it. In other words, if you don't shoot that 110 class five-and-a-half-year-old because you just don't want to burn a tag on him, it's okay. He's not hurting anything. In other words, you know, by the same token that removing him doesn't improve antler genetics, leaving him out there doesn't drag it down. Well, and then I guess by the same token, you could say that shooting spikes doesn't really matter. I've always been against it um, in in – I have personal experience, like to validate why I've been against it, but I don't. I don't guess it really matters, does it? No. And and here's the thing. Um, and this is coming back to what Donnie said too in their study. You know what this what this verified again, as many studies have, is of the three things that produce quality antlers: age, nutrition, and genetics. You can manage two of them with spectacular results, mm-hmm. and one of them. You can't measure any difference. That's genetics. The other two, age and nutrition, you can manage, again, with big results that you will see. 
uh, and age is the first one. And that means that spike, yearling, is going to carry a bigger set of antlers as a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old if he survives, yeah. uh, most likely. And the biggest jump um, you told me off the air, I think, is uh, it's obviously between one and two years old. That's right. What we know from a lot of uh, data collection um, at Mississippi State and also at Texas A&M um, is that the average yearling, when you're looking at him, he's carrying about 30% of his lifetime antler potential on average. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, some individual bucks stray from this average line on a chart, but if you had a thousand bucks in all their data, what you'd see is a line that says at a year and a half, they're 30% of their lifetime antler potential. At two and a half, it jumps to 60%. So, you know, that's where we tell a lot of people, look, if, if all you're doing is protecting yearling bucks, you're making a big difference in antler quality out there in the bucks that you see in the woods mm-hmm. because they've doubled in antler size by two. And then by three, they're at about 80% of their lifetime antler max. And then it, it starts to level off. forty at, By four and a half, you're at about 90%. Uh, five and a half, you're getting right up to about 100. And it tends to, to flatten out from there, as you know, from five to six to seven and on, and then, and then begins a slow decline. Again, there are exceptions. Out of 1,000 bucks, the average is going to be, you know, 100% at five and a half to six and a half. Mm-hmm. But there will be some bucks in the mix that 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 throw the curve. In other words, they were they didn't follow the average. Maybe they jumped dramatically from five to six. Maybe they crashed dramatically from four to five. There's all these things going on. Other factors like nutrition. Sometimes they get injuries. Sometimes they catch diseases. Um, you know, there are nutritional swings year to year, whether that's because of drought or an acorn crop or the farmer decided to plant something different this year or whatever. There's those factors that can change that track for any one buck. But on average, letting him go to older, he's going to grow better antlers. And then the second factor that I said you can manipulate with big effect is nutrition. Yeah. Making sure that year-round, every deer out there has an adequate amount of food. You, you know, you do that two ways, by improving the habitat and also by uh, making sure the deer density is, is balanced with that habitat quality that you don't have too many deer for the quality food that's out there so you know so that's my question for you is yeah go ahead um if you were trying to knock down your buck numbers you've got a two you have, you have your buck to doe ratio is too high where are you shooting them because like we said and, and here's why i've always been against the spike thing and we used to do a quarterly interview with dr deer and uh you know one day i was just visiting with james and i was like uh yeah i shot this buck in south texas he was a 142 inch 10 point at four and a half years old when I shot him. And the weird thing was that he had orange ear tags. And this is, like I told you, this is in Webb County. It was part, it was four, our lease was 4,000 acres. It was part of uh, 40,000 contiguous, you know, I think an oil field or oil company owned it or something. But um, it turns out Dr. Deer's like, well, uh, send me a picture of that buck because I, you know, I have a ranch that we work with on in that area and we tag, uh, same thing with the helicopters they catch and then they tag yearling bucks and i'll be damned if he didn't send me a picture of my deer this was about four years after i shot it as the i don't want to say crappy but i'm just going to say use the deer campaign he's the crappiest sorriest looking little yearling spike only one antlered spike and so i was like goodness gracious this buck blew up to 142 by four and a half and this was during a drought i mean he could have been a 155 and we didn't no one would ever know if they just shot him as a spike right now, you know, certainly there are some fine differences you can sometimes detect with science, like if you had 
two bucks that are both yearlings, and one is a spike and one is a, a branch antler, you know, eight pointer mm-hmm. with a. He's the above average buck in his class. But what if he, he was born earlier? Or what if my spike was born late? Right. Yeah. If the spike was born late, he's still got a little bit of a setback from the outset yeah. that the eight pointer yearling didn't have apparently. Nutrition, maybe mm-hmm. a better mother who had better milk, knew where the better food was. You just never know what all was going on. But born late is another one. But chances are that yearling eight-pointer is probably going to score a few more inches. I mean, I'm talking about a handful, four, five, six, whatever, more inches of antler at maturity over the spike yearling. Mm -hmm. But where I come down to is, okay, so we're talking about a difference between 140 or maybe 145 inches, two bucks standing there. Both of those deer are going to excite the heck out of some deer hunter one day. Um, you know, those kind of differences. Excited the heck out of me, I'll tell you that. Right, (laughs) right. So you just give the deer some time. You you know, you cannot determine, out of all the reasons that might explain why that buck is a spike instead of a four or six or eight-point yearling, whether it's genetics, whether it's nutrition, birth date, whatever, almost none of them, none of them are fixed by shooting him. Um, Particularly if you're talking about a situation where it is buck-to-doe ratio, where you've got bucks being uh, born late because your buck-to-doe ratio is out of whack. Shooting more bucks is just digging a deeper hole. So, yeah, give these bucks some time. Make sure they've got adequate nutrition. And, and again, you know, going back, there's more studies here on this. Texas A&M has got some good stuff they did a few years back on nutrition where they compared bucks in one area where they had high-quality nutrition available year-round and another area where basically the deer were on, you know, maintenance nutrition, survival-level nutrition. They were fine. They weren't suffering, but they weren't on what would be considered high-quality nutrition. And they found at maturity an 18-inch difference on average between mature bucks in the two areas. Mm-hmm. So high-quality nutrition made an 18-inch difference versus seven years of culling, and they couldn't find any difference. Um, so again, going back to things you can do that make a measurable difference, age and nutrition, let them get some age. And, you know, as QDMA teaches, that's a variable goal. In other words, you you know, cable, you might decide you've been around enough. You've shot enough, you know, middle-aged and adult bucks. You're waiting for a four or five-year-old. Whereas somebody who's new to this game, who's maybe never killed a two-year-old, that's where they need to start. Um, particularly if they're hunting in an area where that management style has not been in place in the past. Because if, if folks hadn't been protecting yearling bucks and you walk out there and say, I'm going to wait for a five-year-old, you might be waiting a while. You might be waiting four years. Oh, yeah. I remember the um, first buck I shot. It was a eight-point that barely made antler restrictions, and I didn't care. I, he was probably two and a half, and I boom. It was like, right. legal buck, I'm, I got buck fever, and I don't regret it. Uh, you know, that's right. Like you said, this you got to start somewhere, and and then today I wouldn't even for the, put the my crosshairs on that deer. I would just be like, oh, that's cool. We'll see him in five years. Right. Yeah. And now, not everybody is going to follow that track, but most of us often do, as I did. I mean, know my mm-hmm. first deer was a yearling buck, and I've worked my way up since then. And I think everybody else should do that as well. You know, set yourself a realistic local goal based on age. You're not going to do it with 100 percent accuracy every time. You're not going to walk out of the gate knowing how to look at a deer and tell how old he is. But by shooting a few deer, pulling some jawbone, getting your hands in a deer population, you know, locally with cameras and and time in the field and binocular time, you're going to get um, knowledgeable about, you know, determining age of bucks with some accuracy most of the time. Um, Are there going to be some mistakes? Sure. Are you going to maybe shoot a two-year-old that 
uh, that you thought was three, that's probably going to happen. But it's okay. Enjoy those back straps. You know, this is not heart surgery. Um, and for the most part, you know, deer populations handle that, that kind of mistake very well. They recover quickly. As long as most of your yearling bucks are making it into adult age classes, you're going to see big improvements in the number of bucks you see while you're hunting, the rut behaviors you witness, the scrape and rug, rub activity. You know, even grunt calls and rattling will be more effective because there's simply more adult bucks out there. The rut competition is stronger because they actually do have to compete. You know, now you're, you've got your buck-to-doe ratio roughly balanced, and so with some competition out there, you know, they're going to come to a grunt call a lot better than they used to. Mm-hmm. So there's so many advantages to giving some bucks some age and so the answer adults. The answer is don't just just shoot mature bucks. That's it. Well, I would say shoot what you feel is the age you want to go for locally. Yeah. Again, saying if if you're new to this game and you want to set your goal at two, get a two two year old, and when you're ready to move up to three, move up. Um, but yeah, at some point, what what you do is you say, here's the age goal I'm going for, and when a buck walks out, if he meets it, enjoy him. If mm-hmm. he doesn't, pass him. And that way, you know, I, when we, we talk about culling and management bucks, I hear a lot of pe- people say, yeah, but what about that five-year-old that only, you know, that's below average, that's low scoring? Well, take him because he's a five-year-old. Don't worry about his antlers. He's mature. Mm-hmm. He's a crop ready for picking. This is the crop. And he's standing there in front of you, and he's mature. It's time for harvest. Now, if you don't want to burn a buck tag on that deer because he just doesn't excite you, and maybe you're hunting another buck and you've got limited buck tags in time or whatever – that's fine, but letting him go isn't hurting anything. Put somebody else on him. Let a new hunter hunt him if you're seeing this buck all the time. Yeah. Let a kid shoot him or whatever and enjoy that deer. He's he's mature. You don't need any more justification for pulling the trigger on a mature right. buck than the fact that he's mature. Uh-huh. Pull that jawbone, particularly if he's older, six, maybe seven, or who knows, older. Um, I don't care what he scores. Pull that jawbone, put, his, put the antlers on the wall, and hang the jawbone with it because it says, look, this buck survived five, six, seven years out there, and not many bucks do that. He's a rare deer, regardless of what he scores. Well, certainly fascinating stuff today. And as we're wrapping up, though, going back to those antler restrictions, and I brought this up at the very beginning of our conversation, um, and Texas Parks and Wildlife will tell you uh, that the stats say hunters are shooting older deer on average. And, uh, and, And I think that maybe a byproduct of that is, you know, the deer that are getting shot have bigger antlers, but based off our conversation today, I'm just going to assume that they, that antler restrictions are not affecting the quality of antlers. I mean, but yeah, maybe it's making hunters shoot older deer, which isn't a bad thing. No, they work for the most part. Now, you know, biologically, they have to be designed well. And QDMA looks carefully at antler point regulations when we're asked whether we approve with some of some proposal. Um, we don't push antler regs, but when agencies or hunters come to us and go, you know, what would you think of this reg? We have a three-way test. And one of them, one of the, the tests is whether it's biologically practical and, and appropriate where it's going to be applied. The goal, of course, is to protect some age class of buck, usually yearlings, mm-hmm. without protecting a whole bunch of other age classes, say two or three. What you don't want is a is a rule that protects the bottom half of a year class, but not the top half. Like if you've got a rule that protects the bottom half of the yearlings out there, um, but your best yearlings, 
your four and six and eight year yearlings are legal and they're getting shot, yeah, that's yeah. that's not good. What you want to do is try to protect 100% of the yearling age class and maybe another one. I don't know, but um, usually it's yearlings. Um, and most of the time, these rules are developed well enough that all the yearlings are getting protected. Any that are, you know, so good and so outstanding um, their first year that they're getting killed as yearlings, it's usually not common enough that that is having a, an, a, an effect across yeah. the board in a large area. It's usually just sort of – and the thing is, what we know, you've got to take into to account the voluntary practices of many hunters. Um, most – um, you know, we we know from surveys that about 80% of modern deer hunters have told us they practice some form of quality deer management. That's the vast majority of most deer hunters in the country. And many of them, um, you know, except on public land where we know that for different reasons, a legal buck is going to be taken most of the time. Right. But on private land, which is most of the deer hunting land in the country in the east, um, you know, if my county regs say, he's got to have four points on a side or better. In other words, basically an eight-pointer. But as a hunter, me, Lindsay Thomas, looks out there and sees um, what is clearly to me a young deer with a young body that meets the antler reg, he's not going to get shot by me even though he's legal. So on top of these antler regs, you've got a lot of volunteer hunters uh, or voluntary choice by hunters, um, you know, protecting bucks that otherwise would have been legal anyway and going by age. So... Um, well, we've seen why... it in East Texas, just to give you an example, like the last five, six years, there's been some giant deer being shot in, in much of the Piney Woods region, right? And before that, it was a rare, rare thing. And it's not because the genetics have changed. It's because hunters aren't shooting yearlings or two and a half year olds. I mean, that that's the difference, whether that's because that's right. antler restrictions are, are mandating that or I think, I think it's a combination. Yes, antler restrictions are, are making folks shoot uh, older deer. But also, like you've said, going back to when I was talking about if it's brown, it's down. The mentality as a deer hunting community has also shifted for the better. Nationally, you can go to our whitetail reports, which are free at QDMA.com, and look at the data. that We turn the whitetail report out every January, every year, and it looks at harvest statistics from every state that has whitetails. And we break this all down, and for years we've been tracking it. For the last 30 years, the percentage of the buck harvest made up by yearling bucks has been on a steady decline from in the high 60s nationally Mm. to the most recent year. I think we are now down to a record low in our new whitetail report coming out next month is going to report this. Uh, We're going to have some breaking news that it's the the new low. It's it's right around 30 to 33% nationally right now. Um, And that's Mm. a good place to be. You know, we don't ever want it to be 0% yearlings in the buck harvest. Um, There should always be, you know, some room there for, kids, new hunters or whatever, to be able to to take that, you know, to take a deer like that in certain areas. So we're not going for zero, but the improvement has been vast from, you know, high 60% down to only 30% yearling bucks in the national buck harvest. And the flip side of that is we're now taking more three and a half and older bucks as a nation than we're taking yearling and two-year-olds. So, you know, the the benefit there uh, from a hunting standpoint, obviously, when your age structure of your buck harvest has flipped like that, very clearly what that means is more adult bucks with larger antlers walking around out there. Right, right. Absolutely. And, 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 and you know, I think most people are aware that you want uh, old bucks and uh, you want younger does. I mean, ideally. Yeah. You know, bucks, bucks die of all kinds of things. Bucks are risky animals. Um, bucks have a higher natural mortality rate than does every day of the year. Yeah. Um, 
you know, particularly young ones that are dumb and wandering around and inexperienced and, you know, they get into all kinds of trouble. But even older deer die of diseases and, and mishaps and fall down wells and, you know, jump on fences. All kind of crazy stuff happens to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the natural mortality rate of bucks is, you know, you're never going to stockpile a whole bunch of five-and-a-half-year-olds out there. They're always still going to be a relatively small slice of the buck population pie. That's what gets but, us excited as hunters, right? Yeah, but yeah. there's still more out there. Um when you're not shooting yearling bucks than when you were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, I certainly appreciate it, man. It's been a fascinating conversation, uh, an eye opening one, no doubt. If you want to, uh, plug QDMA, give us the, uh, the website and, and, uh, you know, if anyone, yeah. well, in this article we've been members. talking about is it's online. So uh-huh. I'd welcome your listeners to come give it a read. Um, the title was QDM works culling doesn't. So you could probably Google that and find us or just go to QDMA Dot com And we have a ton of free information on there about herd and habitat management, how to do all of this, um, catered to, you know, every region of the country. Um, and, again, we'd appreciate your support. Um, we're a nonprofit. Our mission is ensuring the future of white-tailed deer, wildlife habitat, and our hunting heritage. So beyond just teaching hunters about science-based herd, you know, habitat management and population management, um, we also work to ensure the future of deer hunting. We've got a great hunter recruitment program going right now called Field to Fork that is aimed at adults who've never been hunting and would like to acquire their own food, and it's working phenomenally well. Uh, We've got programs to advocate for wise policy in deer management around the nation. Um, You know, we we do a ton of stuff in the realm of ensuring the future uh, for white-tailed deer, not just managing them well today, but making sure all of us can hunt them and have that hunting heritage for future for the future. So I'd encourage your listeners, if they're not a QDMA member, we'd appreciate their support. Um, quick note, we are a four-star charity. That's uh, Charity Navigator is an independent group that evaluates nonprofits like us, and four stars is their highest rating. And basically that means if you give us membership dollars, we're going to spend it doing what we said we're going to do. Mm-hmm. It's not so Lindsay can go deer hunting. <laughs> right. This is so that Lindsay can work for the future of, and our mission like we said we're going to. So you can give to us um confident that we're going to spend your money wisely qdma.com to learn a lot more about us and and sign up for that free newsletter qdma.com slash newsletter uh, we send it out weekly very free and easy to to learn about more about deer and about qdma well and i do want to say thanks to stan coates uh he's a listener who actually he's the one that sent me the link to the article Lindsay. so uh Great. he you know one of our listeners he was like this is interesting and uh so anyway thanks stan we certainly appreciate that and, Lindsay, I appreciate your time today more than you know. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, Cable, thank you so much for having me. I really, I love talking about this stuff, and I uh, really enjoyed chatting with you. All right, take care. You do the same. All right, there he goes, Lindsay Thomas of the QDMA, Quality Deer Management Association. And let me clarify something here, uh, because I don't want you all to think that I'm all of a sudden against culling deer. I'm absolutely not. While the research lends me to believe that you can't truly alter the overall antler production of your buck population on a low fence property, uh, I do believe you still need to call bucks, right? If you need to shoot X number of bucks every year and you've got a three and a half year old 120 walking around right next to a three and a half year old 140, which one are you going to take off of the property? You know, they're still competing for food. They're still breeding does. uh, So obviously you're going to shoot the 120. So keep that in mind. 
I'm still all for calling, and I'll probably still refer to that as a call buck because you are calling them out of the population. Now it's just with the understanding that you're not altering that uh, antler production in your buck population. That segment of the presentation was brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. You know what you do? After you put your tag on that big buck, you stop in at Rudy's for some delicious barbecue, and you polish it off with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. Man, it's making me hungry just thinking about it. And thirsty, by the way. Uh, Unfortunately, just looking at the clock, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Lindsay, as well as our other guest today, Craig Lashak of DU. Also, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying Merry Christmas, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. You'd never know money's tight Watching my honey string Christmas lights And sing along to deck the halls Ain't Kathy and Uncle Joe Are putting tinsel on the tree They came all the way from Texas Just to see our little miracle Sleeping down the hall A newborn innocent baby boy 